Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. My name is Jesse Day, and before we get started, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is a full-time trader who hunts out some of the most hated sectors in the market, such as thermal coal, offshore oil services, uranium, and tin, looking for upside potential. It's somebody I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time now, Trader Ferg. Welcome to Commodity Culture. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I want to get started like I do with all new guests with the origin story. So how did you first discover investing and trading? How did that lead you to commodities and energy and some of the more obscure sectors such as tin, coal, offshore oil, oil field services, etc.? Yeah, so I was working in Australia in asset management and... Um, I was kind of a bit disillusioned with the corporate job. Like I was working mainly managing property at the time and just essentially wanted a way out of uh, the corporate world and was lucky enough to meet my mentor, Brad McFadden. And he specializes in sort of distressed, sort of um, hated sectors and just essentially searches through for, for value there. And so he's been my mentor for coming up 10 years. And he really showed me the ropes and that. And so um, just absorbed everything he said and was lucky enough to quit my job, uh, my 30th birthday, and kind of made a, a full gig of it ever since. Um, yeah, you always find me searching for anything that's gone bankrupt or is hated, then that's where I'll be looking, trying to find the biggest margin of safety. And should mention it's mostly cyclical stuff. So, yeah, I generally stick with stuff that I know needs to be around. I'm not like trying to. Like, yeah, pick any any other sectors that I don't know. Uh, like, I would sort of say that energy is sort of a necessity for humanity. And so, you know, it's not going anywhere. And so you can um, pretty easily forecast there's going to be demand for it and then so just go into the hyper-cyclical stuff and try and pick it up when it's most hated, um, when no one will. Everyone sort of shuns even mentioning it. Often you see, like, stranded assets, uninvestable, those are all the phrases I love to hear. That's when I get involved. Great. Well, I'm excited to dive into some of those sectors that are hated because I have a deep interest in, in several of them as well. But first, I want to touch on a tweet you made recently where you said Europe is going to lose this game of energy musical chairs over and over again to the likes of China. China, locking in 27-year Qatar LNG contracts. Europe, we're waiting for legal clarity about how this will impact our decarbonization goals. Now, I think this sums up the madness of the ESG movement and, you know, the wokeness to some extent that's pervaded Western societies and politics. So as countries with a more practical outlook and a mindset towards energy start to overtake these Western nations, will the politicians and people wake up in places like Germany, in places like Belgium, in a lot of the EU and in, in, you know, in the US, this is happening as well. It's happening all over Australia, where you're from is does not want nuclear plants, at least for the time being. Will these politicians and the people wake up eventually? And how much pain do you think it would take for that to happen? 
a lot is, is a simple answer is it's an ideology. So you've got to be very careful thinking that facts will break it on the short term. It's, um, I think we've seen it in some sort of interesting aspects of it. Like I've talked about Sweden a bit, even with the sort of the lockdowns, like it, there's a similar trait there is if you come at it from a very logical standpoint, you'd think, oh, everyone will look at that. We'll like measure the measure both and then we'll go with the best option. It's not the way this works. This is like an ideology an ideology isn't based on facts to start with, so you can't break it with facts. It's gonna have to be an awful lot of pain and enough of the population to really turn against it and then you'll it's just the way democracy works, I guess, is there will be a counter trend. Someone will run under the way I see it probably playing out is someone will run under what well, they'll they'll lay all like cheap energy or pro-business and that will just be to to bring back coal and um and yeah kickstart the economy that way because a lot of these policies will cause that much pain and it's kind of yeah what i'm trying to point out with that tweet as well is just um just how short-sighted a lot of the stuff is like europe got an absolute gift and like the one of the warmest winters on record like depending which country you look at some of warmest winter in 50 years, some um, even longer, and China was in lockdown and kind of like they just won a game of Russian roulette and have gone around boasting about their skill and are getting ready for the next game. It's just <laughs> it's just absolutely absurd. And meanwhile, China's, China's doing all the right things. Like they're out there locking in contracts, even the rest of the developing markets. I don't think people are noticing that they got so shafted Last winter, with a lot of their contract LNG contracts getting reneged on, they've firmed up a lot of their contracts, so it won't happen again. Because a lot of the all of the LNG market, um, well, the reason a lot of it was spot was Europe always knew it was like the um, it's kind of the premium market, so they could they always thought they'd pay up to always secure um, whatever they needed, and now they're realizing that. Not always the case with like China's willing to pay up. Like we saw it last winter, they've sort of buy it at any cost. And yeah, I reckon they're walking headfirst into another energy crisis. And that's um, what I'm preparing my portfolio for, uh, for. And it's also interesting to always try and cut through some of the narratives because we're always reading Western media. Like one I was just reading about before was uh, someone's writing about how well China's doing with their EV adoption to decarbonize. And if you actually, like, you can see the build out of coal plants. So, obviously, decarbonization isn't their number one aim. And so, you'll think, well, why are they expanding the EV so quickly? And it's energy security is their main aim. They're trying to wean themselves off oil. And so, it'll be very careful, like, always following the narrative in the mainstream media, is it can love to feed us what we want to hear. I think it's one of Morgan Housel's quotes that I always um, parrot is the fact that, yeah, you can be wrong, but as long as you're telling people what they want to hear, you'd be wrong indefinitely without penalty. And that's what I'm always kind of looking out for is, yeah, what, what's kind of narratives that everyone sort of nods ahead in agreement, but is, yeah, completely misses the point. Yeah. And I think we've gotten to the, to the point 
that listening to the mainstream media and trusting what it's saying for the vast majority of things is probably not intelligent. Um, I want to discuss fossil fuels, starting with oil. Um, what are the main tailwinds you're currently seeing for oil? And are there any headwinds that could potentially derail the bull thesis and send prices lower? Yeah, so to start with, I was a bull out of the um, oil bull with the China reopening, and I got that completely wrong. So I think it's important to always be honest and humble with um, short-term predictions and commodities. Um, been wrong on Newcastle, and never thought it would get to the level it has. But like reviewing what actually went wrong with that trade, I think it's interesting to note just how much China stockpiled. So China has averaged imports from Russia of commodities of about three billion a month through uh, right up to 2019, and from 2020 on it ramped up to 12 13 billion a month and this is as they were in COVID lockdown so their demand should have been falling off so they've they've been stockpiling all commodities bulk of that was energy obviously but they've been stockpiling all commodities through the roof and it's, it's kind of always funny how kind of mirrored it is with the west as the west was drawing down the SPR <laughs> the China was absolutely filling theirs to the brim just how how pragmatic their energy policy is versus the stupidity of the West. It's just, yeah, I always joke about it, but it's actually nice because you're easy to make money off it. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's one of the main um, sort of short-term um, issues that didn't foresee that certainly held down oil prices. The thing that's interesting with oil, with the sort of the bear cases, is they are all quite tactically short-term. It's very hard to find a long-term oil bear. So it's a, I've always kind of, it's just the way I trade. I really don't have much confidence in anything six months, a year out. It's, that's really hard with commodities. They'll always punch you in the face if you think you're going to have accuracy in the short term. But the further out you go, the more supply destruction there is, the harder it becomes to stay bearish. And even there was a great conversation recently between Michael Cow and Alexander um, Start, and they, they're both oil bears. But, yeah, as you kind of dig through their bearish um, theses, you get to the point that they're actually on the downside. They're only seeing sort of maximum downside of 50 before it would put the brakes on shale so heavily that it kind of springboards the future um, supply, uh, oil price. And, again, it's this, this game of – it's almost a game we're playing at the moment is like how bad can the recession be to destroy demand and tank oil prices? But as you're kind of thinking of what could happen to the demand side, the supply side just grinding lower. Like if you, you're losing five, six, even if you want to get really bearish, like 7% supply declines and to destroy that much demand, like GFC did two and a half, three percent um, in a year that, COVID lockdowns, everyone um, obviously locking down the world, stopping air travel, that was still only 8 9%. So you, um, with the supply declines, you're going you're gonna to come out on top. Sure, sure, it could be wrong in the short term, but all my bets, um, I'm always taking with a two- to three-year time frame. And, um, yeah, that's probably one of the higher conviction plays is that we're going to see this stuff really rocket. And what's even more interesting is a lot of the sectors, and, and particularly offshore, 
it's rocketing now with with oil not even moving. So it's all broken out, and um, yeah, oil's still sort of cruising along in the 60, 70 barrel range, not really doing much. So begs the question, what will it be doing sort of north of 100 dollars a barrel? Very interesting breakdown. I want to shift to natural gas now, often called the widowmaker trade, and it fell dramatically after surging last year, and now trading sideways, though some analysts I've spoken to have said we could be close to breaking out to the upside here. What is your view on natural gas long term? And I love that you take a, a two to three year approach. And could we ever see prices in the $9 range again in the years ahead? Yeah, so I, I've always followed natural gas as a, a sort of a way to play coal. So I've never actually owned, um, well, I had owned natural gas in the past, but it's got, I just see coal as an easy way to play it. On my view on natural gas, some some of the pundits I follow see some of a convergence with um, US natural gas and Seaborn, which I think is kind of fascinating if that were to happen. Like it's kind of interesting. You got US adding 40%, uh, I think it's over 40% um, capacity to their LNG exports by the end of next year, I believe. And so that's kind of the basis for the fact that they need to um, ship all this and shale is continuing to roll over so that supply um, isn't going to be able to keep up and that's kind of the the basis for you could see this energy convergence it's not really my view i just yeah i just see it going higher i continue to um to like yeah like trying to play the trade by by coal has always been the correlations extremely tight lng is hard to play and as i say the um U.S. gas always kind of has got a bit more of a premium, is a bit more acceptable. Like it's sticking with my theme. I'm always in the stuff that no one will even um, dream of touching, and so it's always been yeah more of an obvious setup. But yeah, I'm yeah I'm super bullish um, natural gas across the board. So let's talk about coal now. Um, obviously, it is a very hated commodity, and. I'm wondering if you see coal use accelerating or continuing for the foreseeable future. You were mentioning some countries getting outbid for LNG by Europe during the expected energy crisis that didn't fully materialize because of warmer weather. We saw countries like Pakistan take a hard shift towards coal because of the fact that they were not able to get the natural gas that they needed. So do you see this trend continuing how do you play the coal sector? Where can people look for opportunity? Because it doesn't seem like there's a ton of publicly traded companies. So maybe you could give some insights there. Yeah, so I've, yeah, I've been a coal bull, bull since first writing about it um, like over, yeah, over two years ago. Just thought it was uh, the way I've always termed it is it's coal's the break the glass um, emergency fallback when you have dumb energy policy. And we've seen that again and again like nuclear is the right option um but coal's what you do when you panic like it's kind of even termed that it's like cheap lng because you don't need all the expensive regasification the expensive tankers you just pile it outside the factory chuck it on the top of a ship you just use a dry bulker and um and it's it's just cheap and efficient and it works and um hence so we, we've seen every time 
there is a screw up. It's a rush back to coal. Um, and I think that's going to continue. I think it's very short sighted to think, um, like I've seen all these charts that are rolling over. You can look at Newcastle futures and they're giving no premium for the coming winter. Whereas on the back of last winter, it was kind of like, oh yeah, okay, this will probably happen again. So we're already in sort of maximum complacency. So it's always, it's always been my take that it's a beautiful, like almost pair trade, uranium and coal. You, um, yeah, as the stupid energy policy continues, um, we keep falling back to coal. And if we um, do the right thing, it will be in nuclear's favour. But for actually playing it, you want to stick with like the, the high energy coal, um, like ideally Newcastle, and that's that's just the sheer result of it. It being more capex constrained is it's it's interesting when you look around the world and who's got um, all the high quality coal. It's generally in countries that are um, pursuing ESG, apart from Russia, and they've been cut off anyway. So you've got the likes of Australia, US, um, you've got Colombia's got a lot, and they've obviously got a um, got an energy minister that same will keep it in the ground now. Um, and with high energy coal, it's often deep underground, so it needs um, far more capex and longer timeframes. And most of the coal companies aren't willing to do that. Like you've got likes of BHP that are just sort of, um, or any of the, the big the big miners are just high grading their coal portfolios. Then you've got the the next step down, the actual coal producers um, themselves, the pure pure plays. They are looking at development projects and saying, oh, those numbers don't stack up and I can just buy back my own stock if the market's only going to give me one, two times cash flow. So I'll just buy back my own stock and engineer my stock price higher. And then you got the guys below that. They can't get finance. They can't do it out of cash flow. So they can't even, can't even ramp. And so I've kind of deemed that I wrote a long blog post on it on my Substack and just said it as the beneficiary of dumb energy policy and so long as yeah, there's there's no real capex. Like capex actually went down with four hundred dollar Newcastle, which is just fascinating. <laughs> there's, there's literally the supply response has been taken out the back and beaten to death. The only supply response is in low quality coals out of the likes of like Indonesia and yeah. And so yeah, I think it's a beautiful trend and it'll um and it'll continue to um to grind higher and no one will ever touch it. It will never go back into institutional portfolios and fund managers coal consumption is all-time high and i think it'll continue um setting all-time highs even though everyone keeps forecasting it's about to roll over and die and well you've got um demand held up and you've got supply rolling over it's pretty obvious where the price is going to continue to go i want to touch on oil tanker stocks with you as well. It's a very fascinating asset category to me. I've dipped my toe in the water with a position in Scorpio. I find the fundamentals compelling, though it does seem like a very speculative space with a high degree of volatility. Could you break down the oil tanker sector for us and how you see it playing out moving forward here in the years ahead? Sure. So with tankers, it is, it's always great to start on the supply side. And so with the supply side, you've just got record low order books. If you're going to rank between product tankers, dirty tankers, dry bulk and containers, then product tankers are actually the lowest order book of all. And so that is um, it's kind of bullish in itself. So it's 
it's kind of interesting when you look at the, the ranking of the order book with product tankers being the lowest, the yeah, dirty tankers and then dry bulk and then the containers, they actually had the, um, the greats. Um, they, they really knocked out some income during, um, during COVID. And so they've actually taken up all the shipyard capacity right out till sort of late 25. And so the order book can't be built out. And at the same time, it was like, oh, that's interesting, but what's the actual catalyst? And the catalyst that sort of um, has jumped out before that, it was kind of talking about um, IMO, like the sort of idea that no one knows what a um, what sort of propulsion these will be when they have to, um, they can't run on bunkers anymore. They're probably be like low sulfur or there was talk of running them on um, LNG or even ammonia. And so that's kind of held up um, sort of the ability to build them. But the, the main catalyst has ended up being Russia and the fact that, um, like a, a simple example is um, Europe used to get, I think it was 40% of its diesel from Russia. And now what's happening is like silly stuff. Like it's having to ship it all the way around to India. India refines it and then product tankers take it all the way back to Europe. So it's still Russian Russian based fuel to get around. Yeah. So you got lots of stuff like that, which is just increasing tunnels. I've got, I've got this great chart that's just this picture of the globe and you got all the refineries um, that have been added and those that have been closed down. And it's just might as well be an ESG chart. It's just everything in a Western country has been shut down and everything in an emerging um, or developing markets where all the, um, the new refineries are. And so, yeah, to get the stuff, there's all these um, increased ton miles and yeah there's so many converging factors on increased ton miles where it's um, slower um, slower shipping to try and reduce emissions wherever it's it's just again we always come back to this kind of decarbonisation theme it's just it's just decreases in efficiency as well which just increases prices and so yeah the basic thesis with product tankers is you've got um, you've got demand growth with the ton miles up around the seven Seven percent per annum, and then you've got fleet growth, which is one and a half, two percent. So you've got this um, nice sort of demand growth, and then you've got the um, fleet falling off and can't build the order book. So that's why we're seeing sort of prices blow out. And yeah, the more more sort of refinery shutdowns, and the more ton miles have to be taken up, the more it benefits um, the product tankers. Yeah, and to a certain extent, the dirty tankers, the smaller ones. Yeah. You've called tin your favorite metal to invest in. Could you walk us through the tin thesis and maybe start by just taking a step back because tin is not a commodity that is very often discussed. What is tin used for? What are the main demand drivers for tin? What's the investment thesis and the potential value you're seeing there at the moment? Yeah, so the easiest way to explain tin is it's metal glue. So it's, it's a tiny market and never really gets much attention but it's involved in almost everything. So when you talk about the sort of electrification of the world, tin plays an absolute essential role in that. And yet it's such a, such like a, I don't know, like a iPhone, you, you concentrated on the battery, the lithium, the cobalt, everything. Tin is just like a few cents and so no one, no one even worries about it. And so as a result, doesn't really ever get any attention. All the, the big mining majors don't really worry about it. And it's, at the same time, it's got the other supply. Again, I always focus on suppliers just falling off a cliff. You've got the majority was um, coming out of Myanmar, which is just an absolute mess at the moment with um, 
if anyone's been following the news there with the, the coop and, um, yeah, just absolute mess. And they had high-graded their resource anyway, so it's not as if um, if that gets resolved, it'll be coming flying back. And so that's punched a big hole in supply. And, yeah, on the other side, you've got the demand stories really strong. You've just got, if we're going to electrify everything, it's going to um, continue growing at a rapid rate and no one's investing in it at it all so it's I like it because it's it's so niche like I think people don't even understand how small it is like I think if you compare it to the copper market I think like the total volume of 10 markets like five days of the um of um copper demand of copper sort of yeah volume and so it's just absolutely minute and as a result um yeah it gets really no attention the struggle with it it's hard to play like you've you've really only got two Quality names like Middles X and Alphaman and each have got their issues. Alphaman, you've obviously got to jump to the DRC. <laughs> it's never a great place to, to be based. You never know what next year's or next month's tax royalty system will be or if there's going to be a, some civil war or, yeah, so position sizing is key. And then Middles X has, yeah, done some silly stuff lately, like sort of selling gold mines to women. Within sort of, yeah, their owner has bought it within um, under sort of the company umbrella, which makes no no fucking sense. Sorry, should swear. Oh, all good. <laughs> but um, well, this show is yeah. uncensored. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's 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 just hard one to play. So you, you've just got those two valuation wise, they're great. They're spending out cash. Um, but yeah, with, with ten, I actually don't own any at the moment. I've it's kind of a thesis on the shelf as. I think one of the things I got wrong with it was how much demand had been pulled forward for a lot of electronics during COVID, like with everyone sort of being at home and having to homeschool. There was an awful lot of um, sort of like if you're homeschooling your kids, you have to have a laptop for every kid. So there was an awful lot of electronic demand pulled forward and it's going to take a while for that to um, come roaring back. So I'm far more focused on a kind of like try and split commodities between like OPEX and CAPEX. And so one, like obviously the energy is the obvious one for um, OPEX, like just sort of operational cost to dig everything out. Um, and then I think the CAPEX side of it sort of benefits later. So if I'm, I'm getting back in to try and play metals, tin will be the first one I'm back in. But as, as of now, I'm not, um, I'm not in it. I want to go back to your Twitter because you make some really fantastic tweets, a lot of wisdom there. I definitely recommend people follow you. We'll put a link in the description of the show notes so people can check it out. Um, but the tweet you made was, believing you'll know the exact moment to take your chips off the table in a bull market is the biggest lie we tell ourselves. Gradually scaling out is the only practical way to exit. Yes, you'll miss the top. Yes, you'll leave a lot of gains on the table. Accept it. So obviously having a sound exit strategy is something a lot of investors don't consider. They get into a particular commodity or a stock and they just have visions of sugar plums and, and you know, think it's just going to go. They, they don't think about when do I take my chips off the table. So I think that's a very um, important message you have there. Could you provide some detail on how you gradually scale out of positions yourself? Yeah, sure. So it's just it's understanding sort of human psychology, like we all... We all think we'll be rational beings and in a bull market conversations sort of quickly will devolve into what are we going to call a yacht? Like it's just like the whole kind of laser eyes and who can 
extrapolate it more and the yeah, the whole sort of yeah we've just seen it with crypto like it's no no forecast was big enough like bitcoin a hundred thousand then someone would have to do bitcoin half a million and then no it's bitcoin a million it's just you don't be very careful getting into that whole whole frame because then just the narrative will um will always kind of justify a price and so you'll end up riding it up and over the top and back down and there's there's always countless paper millionaires that never realized anything and so it's just to understand that that train anyone that ever argues against that point i just always point them to stanley druckenmiller who's the greatest investor slash trader um um the world's seen and he um got sort of caught up and caught himself an emotional basket case in the dot-com boom he got out early and then watched as um some young traders just keep making massive returns and um jumped in right at the top and dusted a few billion and when asked about it he said yeah i learned nothing i knew i shouldn't do it i was just an emotional basket case and so someone of that pedigree can make a mistake like us us retail um basic retail of will will make exactly the mistake and so the way you counteract that is by having a very um sort of a pre-planned exit plan and i've written about this on my old blog called it the the monkey trap and it was just a reference to there's a sort of a monkey trap where you can have like a coconut with a monkey sized fist in it and um the monkey can just fit its hand in the in the coconut but there's a few nuts in the coconut, so when it grabs the nuts, it can no longer pull its hand out. So the hunter can just walk up and grab the monkey because it could escape, but it's not willing to let any let go of any of the nuts. And so it's this idea that you have to be willing to leave gains on the table if you're going to exit that that last spike. Is you can't have anything to do with that last sort of blow off top. There's just no liquidity. You're never going to exit into that. Well, maybe you can, but if you're going to try that, be trying it with like five percent of your portfolio that's remaining in the trade. And so the way you do this is the way I do it is I section it up between I have half that I'll exit based on sort of quite fundamental reasons and half that I will exit based on behavioral. And so um, some of the fundamental stuff might be like when I wrote it for Uranium, it was if, um, if spot overshoots term by more than sort of $20 a pound, it was when Uranium goes above $100 a pound, each of these will, um, I'll be scaling out 5%. So it's just little, taking little wedges off, um, off all the way up. And the like behavioral, you get into like, I don't know if someone at a barbecue asks you about uranium just out of nowhere. If the taxi driver turns around and he's trading stocks on his iPhone and he's trying to drive you where he is. If your, your mum phones you up and says, didn't you tell me about uranium a few years? Like just all these little things should denote like, um scaling out gradually and yeah as i said you will you will miss the top but this is the only way to um to exit well and it's especially attractive as well if there is there is opportunities to roll the capital into that still have a great outlook like it's it's far easier to say exit if i don't know if coal's still looking great you can know that you're setting up for another sort of a a more long-term bull market and you're just getting out of what will turn extremely speculative and you just can't be there in the sort of the absolute manias it's um well you can be there but you want to be doing it with a very slim amount of your original position like i probably i'll, I'll try and top tip uranium but it'll, it'll, as i said it'll be with five percent of my portfolio and i'll probably write it over the top and screw it up but at least it's with five percent at the end um 
And so that's how I think you kind of, you manage, um, you manage it because yeah, there's no other way. If, if you try, try and have it like a binary decision, like on this day I'll exit it, um, invariably you'll either get it wrong and then you'll feel the need to go back in and then, yeah, you get in this terrible sort of cycle, um, um, or you'll write it up and over the top because people forget like the liquidity just dries up in these things when everyone tries to sell at the same time. That's why you see these things just absolutely dump and so you can't get out. And, um, yeah, that's, that's how you combat this. You need to sell into the, the upside of the curve because that's where the volatility, uh, the volume is as well. Yeah. So you also posted on your Twitter a chart of the commodities to S&P 500 ratio, and it is very compelling with commodities 50% cheaper right now than their lowest point in 50 years. So we've heard a lot of talk of a commodity super cycle. Are we on the verge of a commodity super cycle in your view? Have we already started one? And how, how long do you think a commodities bull cycle could go for? Well, for how long it can go for is till we rectify the supply situation. And at the moment, we're not even started to rectify the supply situation. We're still, if you just look at um, CapEx for oil, it's just all shareholders saying, give me, give me, um, give me back returns. Don't invest in it. Coal's the same. Even, even stuff that we know we need, like copper, it's, um, it is still sort of people the same, no mining. Like it, and and the ones that can mine are sort of talking about nationalizing it. Sorry, can you hear my dog snoring? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> he, he had a big day. <laughs> okay, yeah, the, the the mic's doing its job. <laughs> yeah, I think he's having a bad dream. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So until that starts to be rectified, until we see like capex start to um, really come back, this bull market's got yeah better part of probably a decade before it's all rectified. I always loved. Um, I think it was Jeff Curry. He observed that, like, you won't even see the big money start to come in until the whole sector has inflected, and they they want to see like a sort of a three year track record before they start risking. They don't want to try and call inflections, and then once all the big money comes in, it's got to be allocated. That takes another sort of um, three three or so years, and then once it's all allocated, then it's got to go to work and sort of produce the supply, and that's in itself is another minimum sort of five, six years. And so you, you need a decade for this to play out. And yeah, for this for this to even get underway, we kind of have to get over the idea of um, just misallocating resources as we currently are with the likes of um, renewables, the whole wind and solar thing that's going to be looked back on as just a massive capital misallocation, just low energy density and very resource heavy. I think we're in. We're currently in the midst of sort of seeing the wheels fall off it with the cost inflation just killing it. If anyone's been watching the sort of wind industry, it's just getting um, getting really hammered at the moment. They're just looking at like the likes of Vestas, it's increased cost thirty percent, still ran a negative eight um, percent margin, and so just getting absolutely run over. So we need, yeah, sort of a long winded way of answering your question we need the ESG and the not in my backyard to sort of come to an end and we need to see CapEx start ramping and I think it could even be longer when you consider consider how long the cycle has been of just cheap abundant sort of resources like you if you take it right back to the sort of 60s and 70s we had the 
the big oil finds was Saudi. You then had, um, which have kind of very low decline, um, and provide a lot of like cheap energy out to the world. You then had the breakup of the Soviet Union, which really dumped a lot of cheap commodities. You then had China, seven excess coal production and kind of be the world's warehouse for cheap labor and cheap energy. And then more recently you've had shale, which shale in itself is kind of an interesting boom because there's no lasting benefit because it's all um, high decline. Like normally if you have a boom, you kind of get a sort of a decade benefit from it. If it was like if you had a boom in um, most other areas like um, mining or like offshore or something like low, low decline, but shale, it all, it all rolls over with the sort of 60, 70% declines. And so it all kind of unwinds itself quite quickly. And so, yeah, it's kind of a long winded way of saying it's, it's going to be quite drawn out. And that's why I've kind of spent all my time kind of like hunting for scarcity and seeing like where are the resources that are really being valued stupidly cheap and have a very large moat. It was kind of like what I was talking about before product tankers, like when you know they're last in line for the shipyards, well then like what's even more scarce than that? Like you go into the offshore industry where a lot of um, the players have all gone bankrupt, they've wiped out all their debt, the shipyards that actually built them have all done their ass and um, had them on their books and some of them went bankrupt. And so if they had to even look at them again, it's totally different economics. It's they're not going to ask for 10% deposit. They're going to ask for 40, 50% deposit. They're, um, the prices are, yeah, going to be, um, far higher to sort of, yeah, if you're going into an energy crunch and a commodity scarce environment, you can, um, guess it. The old, uh, even the, even peak pricing, um, peak replacement cost is probably not going to reflect where the, um, the cost will get to moving out. And so, that's kind of the game I've seen is like just seeking out scarcity and um, and what will have a, a big sort of moat as a result kind of said before that like if everyone focused the last sort of decade was on like ideas like the network effect, I think one of the big ideas moving forward is going to be kind of embodied energy. Like if in a very energy scarce world, anything that took a lot of energy to build, whether it's like a, a um, sort of a, big mine or a lot of sort of hard assets that have now trading for pennies um, on a dollar, that's where you want to be um, going into this kind of um, energy crunch. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ferg, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with our audience. Before I let you go, for those who want to hear more from you, uh, could you tell us about your Substack? Certainly. Yeah. So I've recently started my own um, business, my own Substack. I always kind of wanted control of my content in my platform so um yeah if anyone wants to learn more i wrote some recent articles there's an article on coal there's an article on offshore an article about me if you're even interested in that um my journey and yeah the um the substack kind of just follows along as i kind of interview people i'm curious about and talk about all the um the my sort of trade ideas and how i'm managing my portfolio it's pretty pretty straightforward it's just me me trying to make money and set up my friends and family for the long run. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll put a link to the Substack along with your Twitter below. Definitely suggest people follow you there as well. And thank you once again, and definitely hope to have another conversation in the future and get an update. Certainly. I'd love to. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. 
Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.